Master Tavern Keepers, History of the Old World. And so, neophytes, with our discussion of pre-war Bel Aliad complete, I think it is now time to turn our attention to the east. Let us pass through the Charnel Valley, the Valley of the Kings, with the world's edge mountains looming large above us on either side, and onwards to the remaining cities of Nehekara. And if we take this journey, the first city that we will come to is Marak, called the City of Decay today by some, but known as the City of Hope at the time of the civil war against the usurper Nagash. Und, uh, well, if you recall, earlier we spoke of the covenant with the gods and the people of Nehekara. Oh, yeah, yeah, when we were talking about Nagash and his uh, brother, Sutip. Exactly. Well, the story I told then occurred here in... Marach. This was where the original seven migrating tribes of Nehek were saved from a desiccated death deep in the desert by the god Petra, who split open a boulder from which a spring of fresh water erupted forth. In the ancient tongue, this was called the Kept Am Shepret, or the Sundered Stone in the common parlance, and this gift in such a dire moment, this seed of hope when all seemed hopeless, is why the city received the epithet, the city of hope, and was the birthplace of the old religion. The city that grew up around the Kept and Shepret further reinforced this strong connection to the gods, and as a result, Mahrak was filled with temples to the various deities of the ancient Nehekarans. Around the Kept and Shepret itself was first built a broad plaza. This was soon walled off though, and around this was constructed a gigantic pyramid, at least 200 feet high, according to uh, some contemporaneous scrolls. It is also written that upon this pyramid stood an enormous golden disc that reflected the light of Sol and the glory of Petra out across the desert. In front of this imposing and sacred site sat the Palace of the Gods, the seat of the Hieratic Council, the most senior priests in the whole land and the advisers of kings, princes and noblemen who themselves wielded enormous power both magical and political. The Palace of the Gods was not the only awe-inspiring building in the city, though. There were 12 temples to the greater gods in addition to the palace. These were places where the ancient tribes of Nehek came together to worship on holy days. But inevitably, a city soon grew up around these holy places. 
Alas, details of many of these are lost to us, but in the ancient chronicle of Khonsu the Traveler, he mentions five of the twelve temples. When I came to Mahrak, I had neither kith nor kin in the city, and therefore was as free as the wind to go about as I pleased, or at least as free as the coins I had in my purse would permit me to be. Under such circumstances, I naturally gravitated to the attractions that would cost me naught, and wholly distract me from the rumblings of my belly, at least until uh, eventide. There was, of course, no finer place to start than the temple of Asaf, goddess of beauty, magic and vengeance, and the patron of Lamia to the north. As you might expect from a garden dedicated to the architect of the covenant, it is elegant in its simplicity, beautiful no less, yet at the same time deadly in its minutiae, with exotic flora from the jungles to the south and hardy plants from the mountain tops to the east sitting beside wild flowers from the plain of Tuscas and our local indestructible desert cacti. But beware, for hidden in the green depths are nests of asps, daughters of their mother Asaf, whose great serpentine statue snakes in and around the whole garden before rising high above the canopy at its heart to bask in the light of Petra. But it is not these sights that beguile the visitor, rather it is the perfume of its flowers that make the silent tranquillity of the garden talk, and will follow you around for the rest of the day, chasing you like your shadow, and lingering until nightfall, leaving your body blissfully lethargic. The next day, after sleeping much longer than I am accustomed to, I visited the grand temple of Jaff, the god of war and death, patron of the city of Qatar. And I was greeted by a roaring priest, no less than Atep Neru, hierophant of Jaff and esteemed member of the Hieratic Council. His arms were raised high over the altar of his god. Awake, awaken fury, rise thou with Terror and twisted countenance, O God of war and death, for the sons must feel thy wrath, and thy subjects was quickening madness. All praise to you. 
before him, its head almost touching the low black marble roof of the massive structure, was a terrifying necrosphinx. Oh, yeah. Master Tavernkeeper, I'm uh, sorry to interrupt you, but, uh, a what? Ah, well, necrosphinxes are strange and horrifying things to behold. Each is an amalgamation of two or more of the mythical beasts from the Nehekaran underworld. They possess the face and torso of a man and are armed with huge, scything blades that, it is said, can cut through a dragon's neck with but a single slice. That is not all, though, for many also have a scorpion's tail that is no less deadly to lesser foes. And uh, they are not slow, lumbering things. They fly. And sprouting from the statue's back are a gigantic pair of ornate falcon's wings that complete the beast's fearsome appearance. Anyway, uh, shall we get back to uh, Konsu the Traveller? At the priest's words, the construct began to glow, its large body visibly shaking as divine energy filled it. This process seemed to go on for a long time until, suddenly, the creature began to walk. The cold black marble of the temple quivering at each footfall as it did so. After such excitement, I continued to explore the many rooms, statues and corridors of the temple, but I soon became ravenous and fell upon the nearest market stall to gorge myself on fried, skewered lizards before retiring to the nearest wine emporium to immerse myself in the local lowlife. The following day, after I had been to the nearest bathhouse to wash away the excesses of the evening's fun, I made my way to the Temple of Geheb, the giver of strength, god of the earth, and patron of Kasabar. The temple is a huge ziggurat whose sacred fire at its top has burned for generations undimmed. I began to climb, intent on placing some sacred incense at its zenith, but I had overdone it on the wine the night before, and soon gave up, and instead found a juicesh cellar in one of the nearby alleys and whiled away the afternoon in a pleasant stupor. The day after, rejuvenated, I visited the temple to Kassar the Faceless, god of the desert and patron of Bagar. It is a most imposing place. No tall structure like the others, though. Rather, a wide field of black obelisks, decorated with exquisite ornaments, 
made from bronze, silver, and gold. Here, too, fortune favoured me, for standing amongst the obelisks was no other than Kansu, Hierophant of Kassar and esteemed member of the Hieratic Council. He was talking to another Hierophant called Amit ben Izedin. Kansu greeted me warmly and informed me that he was in fact currently leading my last published piece of writing. He gifted me a blessing and I returned to my lodgings, a nimbus of good fortune around me. Oh, happy day! On my last day in Mahrak, I went to the temple of Usilian, the god of the underworld. I stood before the entrance to the old sandstone labyrinth, the top of the ivory tower at its heart, just visible, and my resolve wavered. I will have plenty of time with Osilian in the underworld, I thought to myself. Whilst in the world, it is best to indulge in worldly pleasures. And so I spent the rest of the day and the rest of my coin at In the Asp, coincidentally owned by the same family that runs the Open Lotus, my local den of iniquity back in Kemli. They even use similar sales talk. Asp, asp, asp. All the asp must go at in the asp. We are slashing asp in half. This is an asp blowout. Make us an offer on our vast selection of asp. We got white asp, black asp, desert asp, mountain asp, hot asp. Cold asp, wet asp, dry asp, big asp, tight asp, fat asp, hairy asp, windy asp, velvet asp, silk asp, naughty asp, snapping asp, horse asp, dog asp, chicken asp, old asp, even dead asp. If we don't have it, you don't want it. And so, neophytes, as you heard and hopefully appreciated, Marak was the religious centre of old Nehekara, although worship took many forms and paths. However, it is not only for this reason that Marak was called the City of the Gods. In fact, the firstborn daughter of every king of Marak was the tangible symbol of the sacred connection between all Nehekarans and their gods, and she was known, for this reason, as the Daughter of the Sun. As a result of this avatar existing, Mahrak itself was protected by the gods themselves, who would burn away any creature of malice that attempted to breach the city, providing a shield of faith around it. Only the faithful could pass through.
However, faith was not Marak's only defense, and having been built on the eastern entrance to the Charnel Valley, Marak was the gatekeeper for the cities of the east, and an obstacle that any would-be ruler of Nehekara would need to overcome. Indeed, this was very much the case when Setra set about unifying the country under the heel of his golden sandal. But through using the lay of the land at the mouth of the valley to their advantage, the armies of Marak were able to wreak immense damage against the invading armies of Khemri in a series of deadly ambushes. Mahrak's armies were well practiced in this tactic, having fought off hordes of orcs and goblins in the years previous, and cleared the region of the green-skin menace. In exactly this way, King Far of Marak all but single-handedly held back Setra's invasion. It was only when the old king died that Setra was finally able to take the city. The rivalry between the two kings did not end in death, though, and after the Great Awakening, King Far was incandescent with rage to find that his descendants had finally bowed to Khemri. In response, he ordered his heirs, the other entombed kings of Marak, to be dragged out and their mummified bodies destroyed. King Far is now the sole king of Marak, and defies the will of Setra at every opportunity, at least when not continuing his campaign to eliminate the green-skin menace, wielding his immense weapon, the Flail of Skulls, as he does so. A unique feature of the armies of Marak was that, in addition to the other usual unit types that were found in the armies of Nehekara that we talked about in depth when we spoke of the army of the Scarab King of Numas, there was a huge number of warrior priests, famed for their strength and power. This should not really surprise us, though. Coming from a city built around temples with a huge population of priests, the upper echelons of the said priesthood also wielded immense power. It was natural for them to be in every part of the city, and this included the army. And not just that. In point of fact, it was the Hieratic Council that got Marak into the war with Nagash. Initially, when Nagash usurped the throne, the council urged restraint. Surely, the gods would punish him. But... When Nagash started murdering acolytes and priests by the thousands, left, right and centre, it was the council that forged an alliance with Libaris and Rasetra against the usurper, bringing their vast resources to bear and effectively financing the whole campaign. But uh, more on the war later. For the moment, know that Nagash managed to break the covenant with the gods, rendering the priesthood neutered, and eventually the city too. Well over a century later, Queen Neferata of Lamia, yes she, helped rebuild the city with generous sums of gold given annually until its completion, and 
In the wake of this, a new warrior priesthood was created, the Hurusani, or the devoted in the common parlance, who based their weaponry and fighting style on the Yushapti. A 5,000 strong cohort eventually repaid their debt to Lamia by fighting at the siege of the city 200 years later, although against Queen Neferata and her vampiric underlings. They fought alongside the renowned jackal squadrons of Mahrak. These were uh, groups of elite charioteers known for their lightning-fast assaults and merciless pursuits of fleeing enemies, who both took part in the original raising of Lamia and then continued the hunt for Neferata after she fled to the deserts in the west. This was to be the last victorious action of the Horasani, though. Nearly 40 years later, the risen Nagash sent a vast army against all of Nehekara. Preparations for such an eventuality had been made, and the warriors of Mahrak were supposed to evacuate. However, instead, the Horasani stood defiant on her walls, their white robes forming an unbroken circle of purity around the city. Arkan the Black strung out his army to surround the entire metropolis, spreading his lines thin, and then launching probing attacks throughout the day. But when sunset came, the main assault began. The city held out though, fighting with unrelenting devotion until nightfall the following day. However, they were but mortals, and the losses and fatigue eventually took their toll, and at their weakest ebb, the dead broke through and killed every living thing within the city before burning down the temples. The world would not see the rise of such an order of warrior priests again until the coming of the Empire. Och, so you have such things as Hurasani in your empire then? Warrior priests, I mean. Ah, yes, we do indeed have a number of similar uh, holy fighting orders in the Empire. Well, as we're on the subject, we might as well just uh, have a little, uh, little chat about it, I think. Heinrich, who would you say was the most well-known of these? Who's worth talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. I would say that would have to be the uh, Knights of the Blazing Sun, wouldn't you say, Master Tavernkeeper? Ah, yes, indeed. So what are they then? Ah, well, that's an excellent question. But if you don't mind, I'd uh, quite like to wet my palate first before answering it fully. 